Yeah, I've been thinking about this message for the last three months. It's one of the most challenging, the most difficult, the most in-your-face teachings Jesus has on divorce and marriage in probably all of the New Testament. And with that, there is a tendency to either say, well, God loves us all, doesn't really matter about these words, and sort of fall into this pit of sloppy agape, don't worry about it. On the other side, there is this ten- tendency to hear the words of Jesus and fall into a big pit of guilt and shame because the bar is so high, the challenges are so strong that you're like, I can never live up to that. Why even try? So I'd like to ask for some freedom today as we try and figure out how to not fall into either one of these ditches and explore the conviction of what God might want to do. Because there's a difference between permitting and prescribing. So before we jump into the passage, I want to give an overview of the Bible what God prescribes for marriage, how high the standard is, and then what God permits, and just how gracious and merciful He is for those who don't live up to the prescription. Let me show you how high the bar is on marriage. When the Bible describes Christian marriage, number one, it says that it is the permanent, sacred union between one man and one woman that actually mirrors God's relationship with us, that He commits to us for the long haul. That even when we're faithless, He is faithful. And the call of marriage for us is to do unto our spouse as God has done unto us. To mirror that covenant and that commitment and that faithfulness. And what makes Christians really unique through history is that Christians also teach, and the Bible teaches, that Christian purity and faithlessness is really key. That the reason we save sexual intimacy for marriage is because covenant comes before, um, before intimacy. You commit to somebody before you get intimate with them. And it's not because Christians are against premarital sex. It's because we're for faithfulness. We believe that God is sovereign and has chosen someone to be our spouse. And that in the high school days and the college days, if we're sleeping around, we're actually committing adultery against our future spouse. And we so want to be faithful to the person God has for us. We so believe in the vision of what he's prepared for us that we want to be as faithful to the spouse we don't even yet know as God has been to us. But it's not just premarital sex or extramarital sex. Jesus raises the bar even higher and says, even a lustful thought in your head or your heart, and you've committed adultery. Oh, I was feeling really good until a second ago. Now I'm committing adultery several times a week, day, hour. That's the standard. And then once he says you get married... A Christian marriage is not two Christians who call themselves Christians getting married. No, it's a Christian marriage. A Christian marriage is the two people that say because God put all his rights and all his needs on a shelf, he humbled himself on the cross to put my needs ahead of his own. He is the ultimate source of selflessness. A Christian marriage is a husband who says, I want to be selfless in marriage. I want to daily crucify my self-centeredness and put my spouse's needs ahead of my own. And I'm going to commit my life to putting your needs ahead of my own that I one day stand before Jesus and say, I'm so proud of the part I got to play and what God did for you. And vice versa. A radical commitment to daily selflessness and prioritizing someone else over yourself. Okay, now I'm really feeling bad. Man, I can't live up to that. And Jesus will go on in this passage today and he'll say marriage is considered so holy, so sacred, so important to God that if you get divorced and you marry someone else, 
you've actually committed adultery against the person you originally promised to stay with to death you part. That's a high, high bar. Wow. Ouch. And yet as you begin to learn about God, as you begin to learn about who He is, He says, this is medicine. This is best practices. This is the mode of operation you were designed for. This is where the best families come from, the best marriages come from, the best societies come from. This is my prescription for how it works. And having said that, not one person in the Bible, not one, lived up to the standard. Having said that, I've barely lived up to this for a few minutes of a few days. I don't know anybody who lives up to this vision, the prescription of marriage. You see polygamy in the Bible. You see murders in the Bible. You see very few people taking God's prescription. And so you hear a passage like this, and the reason I gave all five pieces or four pieces is because I didn't want to be filled with self-righteousness. That's right, I do number one well, oh, but not number two. The prescription should humble us and say, I need God to fulfill this prescription. Because God modeled it for us. God promised to be faithful to us. God kept His purity for us. God is committed to us. He's passionate. He makes a covenant with us. He has eyes for only you. He put His own needs on the shelf so He could come and enter humankind and die for you on a cross because that's how much He loves you and is committed to you. And when we are faithless, He is faithful. On the other hand, God permits an awful lot. And there's a difference between what he prescribes and what he permits. God's forgiveness knows no ends. He forgives people who break their vows. He forgives people and re- puts marriages back together after they get divorced. He, he works with people who've had a bad past. He forgives people with a bad thought life. God works with all of us wherever we are. God hates divorce. He sure does. And any of us who've been through a divorce or know someone who's been through a divorce or a parent's been through a divorce... It's not a surprise that God hates divorce. We hated divorce. It was so painful. And yet, in His permission, God loves divorced people. He works with them to heal them, to help them, to wrap His arms around them. God always works with broken people because that's the only kind of people there are. And yet, while we are not living up to His prescription and He's permitting us to to operate in rebellion, He doesn't just leave us there. He, He convicts us. He models for us a better way. He woos us. He says, come on, it's better over here. Try it my way. And yet, God also makes exceptions for divorce. When there's been such a a severing of trust through marital unfaithfulness, when you get married to someone who's not a Christian... And if they, the non-Christian, the unconvinced person, doesn't want to stay with you, God gives freedom for that person to be free. There's times when there's such hardness of heart that Ezra and Moses both allow for divorce because the hardness of someone's heart just doesn't allow a marriage to continue forward and be a real marriage. But the thing we've got to wrestle with here is this. Just because God permits something doesn't mean that he was prescribing it. And here's the tension we have to walk through as we experience God's grace. How do we work with People who are not living up, like ourselves, to his prescription. And grace is the tension between what God prescribes and what God permits. The tension with how we interact with ourselves and with other people on pursuing God's ideal while at the same time realizing we never will. How do we stay in that tension? It's much easier to stand and say, this is what God prescribes! 
And then we find out we don't even live up to it. We hear news about Ashley Madison or about the Duggards, and we say, I can't believe those people. I'm so much better than them. Instead of saying, oh, but by the grace of God go I, if my secrets, if my temptations, if my thought life was projected for the world to see, oh God, I don't live up to the prescription either. So how do we live in this tension? And the reason we're going to study this today is because when we look at what God permits, what God prescribes, several things happen. Number one, you look at the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was incredibly stingy. They never gave their money away to anybody, but they were very, very generous with their bodies. They slept around with everybody. The Christians show up and they say the opposite. We're going to be very stingy with our bodies, not because we're prudish, because we believe pleasure and we believe marriage and faithfulness is so important. It's only to be shared with one person in the context of covenant marriage. And the Romans were like, what? And they began to form marriages and families that transformed the empire. And while the Romans were very stingy with their money, the Christians were giving their money away to the poor, to the needy, to the handicapped. This was turn the world upside down. So we study this because this is how the world was changed. If you're married and you begin to wrestle with God's high bar, you begin to say, oh, wow, I'm not being very selfless these days. I need to reprioritize my heart to what God would call me to. If you're single and you're not necessarily practicing God's prescription, you begin to say, God, I want to at least start moving in your direction of trusting your prescription for relationships because I've tried the other way and it's not working out real well. If you're divorced... It may be a challenge to own your own gack from a previous divorce. You may need to go and reconcile or apologize for the part you played in breaking up a marriage. Or maybe you just went through a circumstance beyond your control, and maybe today your application is going to be, God, thank you in your permission that you heal me and love me and work with broken people like me, and you're going to have a deeper appreciation for his grace. With that said, let's jump into the passage. What does God permit? There's a, there's a huge uh, debate going on. The Pharisees show up and they're trying to test Jesus and trick him. So he, Jesus, arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. The multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. Now the Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And they were testing him. See, there was a huge debate going on at the time as to... Just what you could get away with. What little did the wife, because the wife couldn't initiate divorce in that culture, only the man. So a man was always looking for, what's the least I can do to get out of this marriage? So that's the debate. That's the context you have to understand. And it's so helpful because I think as we as pastoral staff walk with people through difficult marriages, you get to hear a lot of pain. I remember my friend Stan worked with me and he'd just gone through a divorce and I said, what's it feel like? I mean, this, this process you're going through. He said, yeah, it can't be more painful. And every time you think divorce has reached its worst state, it mutates into another degree of ugliness. He said, it feels like this. The person who knows you best, says they loved you the most, stands before the world in open court and says, I never want to see them again. That's how it feels. I had another friend who told me that is going through his divorce. He said, this is so painful. This is so horrible. I would not w- wish this on my worst enemy. And yet with that reality, I can't tell you how many times people come into our office, marriages in crisis, and they pretty much all have the same list of 20 reasons why God would want them to get divorced. In fact, I wish I had the list so I could just pull it out and say, oh, number five, number seven. It goes like this. You know, we weren't really Christians when we got married. We were too young. We were too old. You know, he's really not the leader he should be. I'm not sure it was a sacred vow we made. 
I know God would want me to be happy. He'd be happier without me. She'd be happier without me. The kids don't want to see us this way. I know God wouldn't want the kids to be exposed to the kind of environment we're creating. And so we go, well, God's going to forgive me anyway. I'm getting to heaven. You know, don't worry about what God prescribes. I remember one couple were coming to our church uh, down in Atlanta, and they'd just become followers of Christ. And uh, as they did that, they wanted to get married. And we said, well, you know, one thing you ought to really challenge yourself with is if God is first for your eternity, then maybe you ought to put, and you want to put God first in your marriage, maybe you ought to put God first in your dating life. What do you mean by that? Well, right now you're living together and you're sleeping together. Um, maybe what you should do is say, God, we're going to try between now and, and we get married in the next, I think it was three or four months, we're going to try and be celibate to say, God, we're going to trust you. I said, and think of how you're going to have trust with each other. You were able to make this vow. You're not going to have to wonder if each other are cheating on each other because you're going to really have made this vow together. Well, he got so mad. He actually thought that uh, we just didn't want the two of them to get married. He goes home. I can't believe these Christians want us to stay, you know, not sleep together. He calls up a friend. They said, well, that's sort of typical practice for a Christian to at least ask you to think about that. Really? So they came back and they said, you know what, we're going to try it. And it was just a great conversation. My friend Kevin was talking with them. And so they'd come up after a week and say, it was not a good week. We didn't necessarily make it. There's a... But you know, we're trying. We're making progress. And I love, and I think it was the last three weeks, they finally said, yeah, we were able to do that. And they were just so glad that it wasn't about sort of checking a box. It was about we're going to trust God for his best here. And they were just trying to move in a Godward direction. I think that's what God's all calling us to do. How do we move in a Godward direction here? Well, here's what happens. Here's how Jesus answers. He answered and said to them, and look what he does. He asked for Moses' prescription. What did Moses command you? What was Moses' prescription for marriage? And they said, I don't know about his prescription, but I tell you, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. So he's talking about the prescription. They're talking about the permission, the exception. Jesus immediately goes back to explaining the permission and going back to God's original prescription. Jesus answered and said to him, because he did allow that. God does allow people to get divorced because of the hardness of your heart. Because people weren't trying to pursue his prescription. They weren't trying to trust him. They weren't trying to do the right thing. So yeah, there's times he allows that. But he wrote you this prescription, this precept, from the beginning of the creation. God made them male and female to be connected and to be committed to one another. Now, there's three schools of thought, you need to realize, going on that uh, the, the, the town would have heard about. One was from a, a Jewish rabbi by the name of Shami. He took a very narrow view that a man could divorce a wife based on Moses' permission if he found on his wedding night that she was not a virgin. Then that was a reason she was unclean and he could divorce her. That was a very narrow view. Then there was another guy named Shami, no, I'm sorry, Hallel, and he said that as you get married, if it comes a place you don't like something about your wife, her voice, the way she cooks, the way she is in the bedroom, whatever it was, if you didn't like something about your wife, you could say, oh, she's unclean, and you could hand her a certificate of divorce. Now, there was another guy who went even further. His name was uh, Kabi. He said, if you find someone better, that person obviously is more clean because you like them better than your wife who's unclean, so go ahead and divorce her and God's okay with it. I mean, just look at the demeaning of marriage, demeaning of women. I mean, there's so many horrible things, but this was common thinking in Jesus' day. So Jesus is going to raise the bar so high because he cares so much about men, so much about women. Even the passage he quotes here from Genesis raises that men and women are partners made in the image of God. God made them uniquely, and they should be esteemed and valued, and the union of marriage should be esteemed and valued here. Jesus says, no, 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 no. 
all these exceptions and permissions you're using. No, that was nowhere near God's standard of what he wanted and what he was pursuing. See, they lived in a very permissive culture. We, we too, today live in a very permissive culture. I was talking to a friend. She went in for her uh, her checkup, the medical checkup. You know, parents you know, couldn't come in. They're asking all the questions about their sex life and all that. And, and she's like, well, actually, I'm a virgin. No, you're not. Come on, seriously. Your parents aren't here. What, tell me the truth. No, really, I am. She says, it's like finding a unicorn. I can't believe it. It's like finding a unicorn in our culture. I, I found a unicorn here. But just in the last couple of months, I've had a chance to uh, do a marriage of a person who's single again. And they, he and his wife had really committed that at 36, they were going to pursue and trust God's ideal. He said, I tried it the old way. It didn't work out real well in my first marriage. I want to trust God. It's about trusting his prescription. And that's what, that's what you do with a doctor, right? You put yourself under their authority and say, I'm going to trust that this medicine, that this surgeon will work. That's what they were doing here. I was talking to a, a teenage a boy a friend, and uh, I just shared with him. He said, "Sort of, what's sort of the, the natural status of relationships? Well, you, you 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 date, and then you live together, and you get married." I said, "Well, that's a great recipe for divorce." He said, "Why? Because that's sort of what you do." I said, "Well, that's fine, but the stats show that if you get live together before you're married, your divorce rate is 33 to 100 percent higher." He said, "That's not true." I said, "Well, of course it's true. Just think about it. You start your marriage on this foundation: we're going to try each other out. And if it works, we'll do it. And if it doesn't, we won't." Your very foundation is jello because it's based on we'll see if we like it. Marriage starts out with the foundation. We're committed. We'll figure it out. No matter how self-centered you are and how crazy you are. But see how that foundation's better? Hey, so my, I told my dad that he's living with somebody right now and he says you're wrong. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I did not know where your dad was. I said, I'm not judging anyone. I'm just saying, do you want... Your family's been through a divorce, right? He said, yeah. I said, do you want divorce for your kids? He goes, no. I said, why not try something different? God says this works. It's better over here. Try his prescription. He goes, that makes a lot of sense. But God does permit. And Moses permitted. But then he lays out this prescription. Jesus goes on and says, basically, in the words of, uh, of Moses, do not unone what God has made one. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They become one in God's eyes. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together may no man separate. The marriage, the commitment, the challenge that God has, he sees you as one based on those commitments you made and that connection you made with him. Which means, God says, if you got married when you were young, Fight for your marriage. If you got married when you're old and you're set in your ways, stay married. Fight for your marriage. Stay together. Work it out. Figure it out. If you were really selfish when you got married, guess what? We all were. Work it out. If one of you was more selfish and the other was more selfless, work it out. Fight for your marriage. Stay with it. Fight. Don't focus on your happiness. Focus on your holiness. Because if you're holy, you'll be happy. But if you're happy, you're rarely holy. God puts you in this cauldron of marriage to bring out a lot of your impurities that you would find out just how self-centered you were and God would use that to refine you and to grow you and to push you and to challenge you. And marriage is a container where love can go through its seasons and in the winter it's like, oh my goodness, this is horrible. But stay in it because spring is coming. Stay in it. There's a summer coming. God sees you as one flesh. That's His prescription. Now, we've all heard the, the divorce rate, right? It's 50-50%. All, all marriages end in, in 
50% of them get divorced, 50% make it. Harvard researcher Shanti Feldhahn, in her book, The Good News About Marriage, said that statistic is totally an urban legend. It's not true. She wouldn't backtrack where that research came from. It's not true at all. In fact, the good news about marriage is that when you actually do the tracking on those who stay married, it's much higher. 72% stay married for a lifetime. 72% of those who have been married are still married to their first spouse. Looking at everyone, including those married multiple times, only around 3 in 10 have experienced divorce. She says, imagine the impact of our society if we began to say most marriages last for a lifetime rather than half of all marriages end in divorce. I mean, I've heard that statistic for years. In moments when you're in a winter season of my marriage or going through a difficult time, I've said to myself, well, I had a 50-50 shot. I guess we're one of the bad ones. It became the excuse to begin to sort of mentally walk down the trail of it's ready to give up before we have kids or or, or before whatever it is, the, the sort of lies you tell yourself. Versus, you know what, most people... Stay married for a lifetime. It's worth the effort. The, 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 the summer is coming again. Just push through the winter at this moment. Well, Jesus setting this high bar. The people say, well, then how does God feel toward those who've been divorced? And here's where that passage is that is just so strong. In the house, the disciples asked him about this matter. He says, well, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Meaning God saw you and your first wife as one flesh. So when you go and marry somebody else, God considers that adultery. Remember, in the Jewish law, men could initiate divorce, but not women. But in the Roman law, the women could as well. So he then addresses the Roman law. He said, by the way, the same is true of a woman. If a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery because she is not honoring the commitment she made to her first husband. Wow. Now keep in mind... The cultural background. They were divorcing for any old reason. Hey, I didn't like you. Here's your piece of paper. Good luck to you. Hey, I found somebody better. I know we committed as long as we both shall love, live, love. Uh, so we're not going to be together anymore. I found somebody better. You're unclean. So keep in mind, the, the liberal stance on marriage and the treatment of women was so low. Jesus' standard is so high in contrast to that. He is esteeming something of value worth fighting for, worth dying for. Let's try and unpack what that looks like for us. And let me go back to my main point. Grace is the tension between what God permits and what God prescribes. So how do you act out or apply that grace in these unique, difficult circumstances? Because the whole time the message is going on, you probably got in the back of your head, well, what about this and, and how about that and what about this circumstance? And you know, 40% of us in this room statistically are in blended families. So I don't want you to fall off into the, the, the cliff of guilt and shame because that's never done anybody any good. But I also don't want to say, well, I guess it doesn't really apply today. Don't worry about it. God loves you anyway. How do we work in that tension of saying this is what God prescribes and I pursue it. And yet I, I, I have never lived up to it and his grace sustains me. I think there's two responses to that. Number one, all of us need to repent of the areas that we are operating in his permission. You know, he's permitted us to do some things, and we need to repent that we are definitely in the permitting mode of life. We're not in the prescribing mode of life. I think it looks different for some of us. For some of us, we got divorced. We were in a very hard marriage, and we gave up too soon. And part of our process of moving on and God healing us and restoring us to say, God, I need to repent. I was not as committed to them as you were to me. And now I'm beginning to learn how committed you are to me, how much you love me, how much you stay with me through difficulty. God, I need to repent that I did not mirror that to the person I committed to. 
God, will you forgive me? And you're going to find him just drawn near to you. Others of us got divorced, or right now we're entertaining divorce because we're in a hard season of marriage. And it's really because of our own self-centeredness. Oh, we say it's what they did and what they're not doing. Part of our repentance is saying, God, I'm not adapting. I'm not prioritizing. I'm not crucifying my own self-centeredness. God, I repent of how I caused pain to a previous marriage or two previous marriages. Because until you can move forward to the relationship God has for you, you need to fix what you did to contribute to the problem. And so part of repenting is saying, God, I wasn't even applying or thinking about your prescription. Now, for some of us, as we've been talking, you're married, you're thinking about how challenging your marriage season is right now, and you've been thinking, okay, I heard Chad prescribe some stuff. Yeah, we didn't really do that. Well, we sort of, No, we didn't do that. I guess our marriage didn't count. What did Chad say about permissions? What, what, what are the conditions you can't get divorced? I think we apply at one in three. Repent of that. When you start looking for how can I get out of this, I guess I'm going to heaven, Jesus loves me anyway, I'm telling you, you're missing out on the abundant life. You're missing out on God will make you holy through difficult seasons. It is hard, it is difficult, but repent of saying, God, I'm pursuing your prescription for life. Now for others of us, we were in circumstances where we're out of control, and I've walked with many couples through that. Where you just have one person who's an absolute narcissist, and you've spent years trying to connect, trying to have a real marriage, trying to get them to understand empathy in any way, try and move in a Godward direction, and they refuse to, either because they're so committed to an addiction, and they've chosen that over your marriage, and your heart has broken, and you've cried again and again, you've cried out to God, and that person refuses to do anything but serve their addiction or their narcissism. And you have before God tried everything you can and said, you know, I want a real marriage not to be treated like a doormat. I want a real marriage, not, not two people who aren't willing to be in this together. And the marriage has crumbled. I remember we had a neighbor who was in a domestic abuse situation, and my wife and I went over. This was about 15, 20 years ago now. And I remember we helped her move out before he got home. It was a terrifying time. Anytime he'd come home and beat her again, and we helped load up the truck, and we actually helped she and her son get into the car and, and, and be free from that circumstance. And that's one of those examples where, where God permits divorce because of the hardness of people's hearts. And, and if you've been in that circumstance, then maybe what you need to do is receive the grace of God this morning and say, God can repay for the years the locusts have eaten. God has not given up on you. He still has a promise for you. He can still restore. He can still use you. God loves working with broken people. And you can just receive that and know that you are not damaged goods, that you are just as loved now as you ever were before, and God has a plan for your life. Some of us, we're committed. We've been in marriage for 30 years, but we're just existing. Nobody looks at our marriage and goes, hey, I want that. Like, don't you have people in your life, you're like, they've been married for 40 years, and whew, I don't think they like each other. I mean, it's like, that is just nasty. There is no way in which that's this one flesh relationship, this beautiful picture of Jesus in the church. And maybe you've got into that. You've got this activity-centered marriage where you're sort of doing your own thing, living parallel lives in the same household. And you need to repent of saying, God, I am not building into my marriage. I'm not wooing my spouse the way you called me to. God, I want to repent of this passivity and this complacency. And I want to be called back to your prescription of what it means to love my spouse, to adapt to my spouse as you adapted to me. Maybe the final consent is maybe you're single, maybe you're sleeping around, or maybe you're living together. And I just say this, God's going to let you do whatever you want. He permits us to do all kinds of dumb things. And maybe your decision today is, I'm just going to take one step and try it God's way. 
And I just want to look God's way and say, God, I want to trust you just a little bit in this area. Because what I've done has not produced the results I wanted. And maybe your repent is, God, I haven't, I just thought that was archaic and ridiculous. And so I can't even believe, we really believe that here at the church. I thought we were past that kind of thing. And you want to say, I want to try it God's way. To repent. As I invite the band to come up, I think the second response to all of this is we give consent to the prescription. I repent of how I wasn't doing it, and I begin to say, God, I want to give consent. God, I want to focus on the fact that what you're doing in my life right now in my marriage is you're trying to make me holy, not happy. And I'm not going to make excuses because I'm not happy you want me out of this. I want you to be holy, God. Use this circumstance. Use this moment. Use her personality quirk. Use his insensitivity to make me more holy, to make me more adaptive. God, I want to be more faithful in my thought life. I want to begin to practice and give consent to taking thoughts captive. I've got open doors in my mind. I let images from the past, pornographic images, come into my mind all the time. I sort of fantasize and enjoy those things, and I put them back out. God, I'm going to start practicing your prescription, taking thoughts captive, renewing my mind. Instead of complaining about my husband all the time in my head, I wonder why I don't feel good about him. I complain about him all the time in my head and otherwise. I wonder why I don't feel in love. I'm going to take those thoughts captive. And I'm going to renew my mind by learning how to build him up in my mind and out of my mouth. And the same for my wife. I'm going to begin to give consent to apologizing when I do something wrong. To reconciling with someone I've broken. We're all broken, friends. And the beauty of God is he puts broken people together. I remember two friends, Steve and Elizabeth. They uh, did an interview at my church about 20 years ago. And they had had an affair he was a trainer, and she had cheated on her husband with him. They both became Christians, and they were so convicted, and they got married. Um, they'd been married, but they became followers of Christ. And they were so convicted that the damage they had done, the unfaithfulness they had done to their previous spouse, that they both went separately different times and repented to their previous uh, estranged husband in that case. She apologized for the pain she had caused. She repented of what she had done. And they said, you know, we are not living in God's plan A, but we're in plan B, and we really want to do this right. We want to own our junk. We want to own what led to this. Because if we couldn't trust each other in this relationship, how do we know we won't do unto each other what was we did to the other person? And God used that in their life. When I was in Africa, there is a, uh, there's a, a village. And in Africa, there's Christians in there trying to teach the prescription of Jesus. And yet you come into a village, and you have a guy who has three houses. A big house, a hut, a big house, a bigger hut, and a biggest hut. Because he has three wives. And the bigger the hut, the more he likes his wife. And in that culture, the more cows you have, the more kids you have, and the more wives you have, the more important you are. In that order, by the way. Cows, kids, wives. (laughs) So what do you do in that situation? You come in, do you break up a family, or do you say, listen, God's going to work with you where you are, but let's start moving toward another direction. Let's teach our kids a different way. We had a person who told us they went to Italy. Recently, and, and so much shame and guilt over the years of having been divorced in their past. And the shame of that, they kicked out of the Catholic Church and they went to an audience before the Pope. And the Pope gave this incredible message just a couple weeks ago where he said, you know, if you're divorced, just know you're still in the fold. We want to be your shepherd. And there were tears because they were beginning to experience the grace. If not, you didn't live up the prescription, you're out of here. Not, hey, it's permission, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. But we want to be your shepherd even when you're broken. So listen to the words of this next song. I want God to maybe speak to all of us about areas we need to repent or consent as we choose to be broken together. Let's pray together. Father,
We are also broken. Whether it's in our marriages or in our anger or in our patience or in our ability to communicate or affirm, Father, we're all just so broken. And yet you love us and love working with us and love putting pieces back together of a broken puzzle. I ask this morning that you will give grace to those who need grace this morning. That you will give conviction to those who need conviction, that we're on the wrong path. That you'd give comfort to those that are grieving, scars have been brought up by this message. That you'd give fortitude and strength to keep on keeping on during difficult seasons. That you would give us trust that your way really is best. That the way of selflessness and other-centeredness is the way of life and the way of grabbing and demanding is the way of death. And through all these things, Father, that we would be examples of honest people who bring our gack into the light and find a God who loves us and isn't surprised by it all. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, just three quick things as you're leaving. You know, if part of this journey has stirred up some things that you'd like to connect with God about, we do have these little booklets called Honest to God. It's a prayer journey. We're on as a church. We're going to have opportunities to pray as a church on Sunday nights as well as some other things. Check your programs. But that, that, that prayer journey, Honest to God, Pathway to Prayer, is a great way to really connect with God if you want to get that on the way out. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you're new to the church, we'd love to meet you. Third door on your left is the hearth room. We'd love to put a name with a face. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week as we continue our series.